There were two men in a certain city, the prophet Nathan spoke to David, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now, one day a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the traveler food who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for his guest. When King David heard this story, he was infuriated with the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that one lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. Sometimes parables help us to see ourselves. Sometimes a story allows us to look in the mirror more clearly than we ever have before. As we work through the book of Jonah, that same thing will happen to us. We'll discover that we look a lot more like Jonah than we would like to admit. What we'll find out is that we are all Jonas. The book of Jonah is both history and satire. Uh, we know it's history because Jonah is a prophet who lived in an actual time, in an actual place, and prophesied to actual kings, even outside of his book. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, he tells Jeroboam II that, hey, Israel is just going to blow up under your reign. It hasn't seen this. It's going to see more prosperity than it did, or as much prosperity as it did when Solomon was king. Even though you're wicked, because God is good and gracious. We also know that it's satire. Because some funny things kind of happen. The author employs irony and hyperbole and humor throughout to kind of make his point. One of the things that, that pops out to me is how uh, the good guys are usually who you would expect to be the bad guys in the story, right? The people who hear the word of the Lord and respond appropriately with obedience and worship, well, it's not, it's not God's prophet, but the sailors to whom he goes on accident, kind of. And it's not Jonah who listens to God's word, it's the Ninevites who turn from their sin and ask God for grace. But by the end of the book, we're, we're left looking at Jonah as kind of a laughable figure. I mean, he's the prophet that tries to run from God, gets swallowed by a whale, and then pouts like a petulant, petulant, petulant child when his plant withers and dies. It's a fun book. And it's frustrating if you read through it. I was reading through it this week, and I'm going, what is wrong with Jonah? This guy is an idiot. Like, 
He's so dumb. I, is he even saved? Like, does he even know God? And as I thought more about it, I went, oh no. <laughs> this is kind of one of the reasons the book is written the way it is. I'm, I'm going to get really mad at Jonah, but then as I think about the text, I'm going to realize that I am Jonah. I'm just as foolish, just as self-righteous, just as sinful, just as stupid. I'm an idiot just like Jonah. And yet God is patient with me. And he loves me. Just like he loves Jonah. So the main idea of our text this morning is, I've summarized it this way, that Jesus loves and uses idiots. I, try, I softened it actually, but this has been printed out already. I don't know what got happened. It was Jesus loves and uses Jonah. So it's a little less aggressive. But Jesus loves and uses idiots like us. And I'm going to exhort you to put obstacles to your obedience, obstacles to your faithfulness in the light. That'll make more sense as we work through our outline and consider, consider three obstacles to obedience. Fear, hate, and love. Now, before we pray and get started, I do want to say broadly, if I were going to title uh, this sermon or the book of Jonah, kind of with an alternative title that captured its theme, I would call it the offensive love of God. Because what's going to happen is, is Jonah is going to be dealing with these concepts of God's perfect, just, perfect justice and God's mercy. And he's not going to be able to quite see how the two fit together. He's actually going to get offended by and frustrated with God's kindness, not realizing that he himself is a recipient of that scandalous grace. I hope that by the time we're finished with the book, all of us will delight in God's offensive mercy and his meticulous sovereignty. Those are two kind of pillars that we see in the book. God's meticulous sovereignty and his radical mercy. So let's pray and we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for this time where we can come together and listen to your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather freely and to worship you with one heartbeat and one voice. And God, we thank you that your spirit is here and is present and is at work. God, we want to be done with church as usual, with life as usual God, we expect something to happen to us this morning. We, we expect you to show up as your word is proclaimed and Jesus is made much of. Meet us here. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah Son of Amittai, get up, or arise. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. It all starts with God's word. Creation comes out of nothing at the word of God. 
Light illumines the sky at the word of God. Sun, moon, stars, they all take their place in response to the word of God. Sinful people come to life in response to the word of God. And it is God's word that challenges us and shapes us and makes us who have been made alive by that same word more and more into the image of Christ. God's word is not always easy to receive. God challenges Jonah with his word to get up and to go and to preach to the great city of Nineveh. And Jonah has an interesting response to this challenge from God. Indeed, he arises, he does get up, but he doesn't make way for Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Jonah doesn't make way to Nineveh to obey God. Instead, he does the opposite. He, he does what would be tantamount to you going to the airport and saying, I need to be on the first flight to the place farthest from here right now. He goes the opposite direction. Uh, Tarshish was a Phoenician trading port located in Spain. And what's the other place? Nineveh is in what is modern day Iraq. And so he, he's going west, the opposite direction. He's trying to get as far away from where God told him to go as humanly possible. It's interesting, uh, the repetition, notice the repetition of the word Tarshish in verse 3. It shows up three times. And the author is trying to uh, illumine for us this contrast that's going on. He's supposed to be going to Nineveh, but where is he going? Tarshish. He's got a boat headed to Tarshish. He's into the boat going to Tarshish three times. He's going the wrong direction. And another really cool thing, Jonah's a literary masterpiece. I had no idea until I started like studying it and reading from people smarter than me about all these neat little things that happen. But one of them is the author uses Jonah's geography to kind of show us things about Jonah's spiritual condition. Jonah is headed west to Tarshish clear that his spiritual trajectory is downward, away from God. Also, in ancient times, the sea was seen as this place of chaos and of death. And so Jonah leaves the solid ground where he was hearing from the word of the Lord, and he heads out west, away from God, into chaos and towards death. The big question is why? Why would Jonah disobey God in this way? The author invites us to speculate it to the answer. Uh, He employs a tactic known as an information gap. And so he just tells us that Jonah is doing this, but not why. And he does tell us specifically why, at least one reason in chapter 4, which we'll get to later. It's only four chapters long. So let's speculate as we've been invited to speculate. 
I think there are at least three obstacles to Jonah's obedience. Three things that keep him from obeying God. Fear, hate, and love. And the first is fear. Nineveh is not a nice place. Notice why Jonah is to go and preach against them. Their evil has come up before God. The idea of this phrase is that they've racked up enough offenses that it's even risen to God and he can ignore it no longer. And Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh and tell them, God is going to judge you. This is for a few reasons. Uh, One is that the Assyrian Empire is kind of rolling right now and they've been made famous because of their cruelty. And Nineveh is one of their flagship cities. In fact, it will become the last capital city of Assyria. There aren't any Jews there. They've not heard of the God of Israel. They are a notoriously wicked people. And God is giving Jonah an unprecedented mission for a prophet. Go to this non-Jewish people, these Gentiles, and tell them that my wrath is coming against them. I mean, this is a crazy mission. Maybe it'll help. Think of it this way. Contemporary Nineveh, where that city was located, is now Mosul, Iraq. Okay? And Mosul, not too long ago, was controlled by ISIS. Imagine God's word came to you one day and said, Christian, arise, go to Mosul. Preach to ISIS. Their wickedness has come up to me. Tell them that that my judgment is coming. You might be a little bit hesitant too. But I don't even think we need to go that far with the illustration. I think some of us can relate to Jonah's fear of going and having bad things happen to him if we just consider sharing God's word with a friend. letting it be known that we follow Jesus in our workplace. I wonder, how has your fear kept you from obeying God? Has a fear of awkwardness kept you from entering into spiritual conversation with family and friends? Has your fear of the world kept you from interacting with it at all? Has your fear of opposition and offending someone else kept you from asking them about where they are with Jesus? I mean, I think one of the things I've noticed in, in our community and in many communities in particular, one of the hardest things about sharing the gospel with people is that everybody just assumes everybody else in the room is a Christian at all times. And so we go, well, we don't really need to talk about Jesus ever. And it really serves as a convenient excuse to justify our fear of talking about him. One of the most important things you can do is is ask somebody, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And see if they they know and have a vibrant relationship with, with Christ or if it's just kind of lip service. I wonder how your fear has kept you from obeying God. I think sometimes uh, in more intense situations,
to do something that we might lose. So like we worry about losing reputation or maybe losing a friend or a family member or maybe even our own life when God calls some of us to more dangerous places. But I think all of these fears need to be put in their proper perspective. One of the things that uh, Jesus says in Luke 12 is this. As I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Here's the point that Jesus is making. God is meticulously sovereign and you can trust him with your life. If God is spending your life in some particular way or allowing circumstances around you to shift into some particular way, it's all right because God is in control. And he is working all of those things together for your good and his glory. You are more important to God than a bunch of spare. most useful tactics is when he tries to tempt us to fear other things more than God. Because when we fear other things more than God, we act in response to those things. They, they end up driving our behavior. But if we fear God above all else, well, all those other fears become short-circuited. Not, not afraid to lose my life any longer because I know my life is God's and I serve the God who raises the dead. Uh, Billy Graham died earlier this week and uh, he quoted uh, Dr. Moody famously saying, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have just gone into the presence of God. This last week we encountered death ourselves as a congregation. As um, Phyllis and Bonnie and Susan's sister all, all passed away the same week. It's been a hard week. But friends, this is, this is the hope of the Christian message, is that when we look at death and the consequences of sin, we don't have to mourn as those without hope. and go, they're gone forever. Instead, to nothingness and their life in the middle can be nothing more than nothingness. It's all meaningless and pointless. Instead of being hopeless, we get to be hopeful. And not, not a fairy tale hope or a cross your fingers and hope kind of hope, but a real and living hope. We can look at God's word and we can look at history and go, Jesus Christ really got up from the dead. We serve a God who raises the dead. So if he calls me to lay down my life, even to the point of death, I can do that without fear. Because he's promised to raise me up also. Death has been defanged. It's been neutered of its power. 
And yes, we feel its sting when we lose people. Yes, we feel the pain of sin when evil comes into our lives and, and terrible things come, in, come our way. But we know it's just temporary. We know that Jesus is coming to make all things new. And that we can live in the same way that, that Jim Elliot, the famous missionary, did. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You can't keep this life. You are going to die. You have an expiration date. Like that can of beans that's been pushed to the back of the cupboard. You have a shelf life. And God has called you to use your life to serve Him, to make Him known. I wonder, is your fear of these really temporary and transient things keeping you from obeying God? Because if you, if you fear God above all else, you put your fear of temporary loss in the light of who God is, and you'll see it shrivel up. That's one obstacle to Jonah's obedience here. He's afraid of going to a foreign people and telling them, hell is coming for you. Another obstacle to his obedience is hatred. Hatred. Look with me at chapter 4. So long story short, Jonah, he flees initially. God forces him to go do what he told him to do in the first place. And Jonah does. He preaches a short sermon. It's just five Hebrew words. And the people of Nineveh respond with repentance. And God responds by relenting. Right? Verse 10 of chapter 3. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh initially because he's afraid that they will repent of their sin and God will have mercy on them. Jonah doesn't want to tell them about God's mercy because he doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. See, Jonah is a jerk. Right? I mean, what a selfish jerk. He says, look, God's forgiveness is for people like me that really aren't that bad. But for people like you who are really bad, you don't deserve that mercy. You deserve wrath. Now hold on a minute. Let's hold the mirror up here. Have you ever thought this way about someone else in your life? Maybe you've thought, I'm forgiven of my sin, 
But I can't wait till they get what's coming to them. Can't wait till he gets what's coming to him. Maybe a school shooter. Can't wait till God's wrath falls upon his head. Maybe it's just somebody that cuts you off in traffic. Can't wait till they get what's coming to them. Or maybe it's just somebody who looks at the world differently than you do. You have an ideological difference with them. And so you go, I'm not going to tell them about God's mercy. They deserve justice. But me? I deserve forgiveness. Friends, it is satanic to make the sins of yourself small and the sins of others large. It is foolish to say that you are worthy of the mercy of God and someone else is not. That's the whole scandal of the gospel is that all of us deserve death. All of us deserve wrath. All of us deserve hell. But when we trust in Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. We get what he deserves. The blessing of God. The pleasure of God. On the cross, Jesus takes what we have earned, what we deserve. And when we put our faith in him, he gives to us everything that he has earned. Everything that he deserves. Adoption into God's family. The certain hope of the resurrection. And I am continually... other people. One such story recently I came across in uh, Rosaria Butterfield's memoir called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And Rosaria's story is an amazing one. She was an LGBT activist and a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse in the Department of English. Uh, She was writing a book about the Christian right and basically how awful the church is towards uh, those who are in same-sex relationships. And in the course of her study, she developed a relationship with a pastor, and eventually God converted her, changed her life. And she's now married to a pastor, and she recounts a time in their life where uh, they had been visiting a church, and the people of the church seemed to really like them, and it seemed as if her husband was going to be called to the pastorate there. And then she writes this, My testimony is like iodine on starch. Someone I valued as a friend, a founding church member with influence, asked me what I would do if a homosexual entered our worship service. I quickly shared with her my testimony, apologizing that I hadn't done so earlier. I gave her a chapter of the book that you are holding in your hand, and I asked her to read it and to let me know what she thought of all this. A week later, she came to talk. She took a deep breath. She looked like she had just witnessed a crime scene. Manifesting disgust and horror, she told me that she wished I hadn't shared this with her. She quickly added, Oh, I'm fine with the information. But X, another weighty founding church member, could never handle it. Do you have to tell people about this? This. Rosaria's unmentionable past. Rahab the harlot. Mary Magdalene. We love these women between the pages of our Bible, but we don't want to sit at the Lord's table with them. 
We are only righteous in Christ and in Him alone. But that's a hard pill to swallow, especially if you give yourself kudos for good choices. I wonder, Christian, have you given yourself props for your righteous living, for making good choices? Have you shrunken grace down to something that you have earned or merited and said, hey, these people who have worse sins than me, they're not really worthy of grace. That is satanic thinking. That is antithetical to the gospel. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the chief, the foremost. Friends, do not shrink God's grace. It applies to anyone who will trust in Jesus and turn from their sin. Hate incompatible with the Christian life. You hear me? Hatred is incompatible with the Christian life. We are to love our enemies, Jesus says, as ourselves. We are, his vision for how we would live in the world is that we would love our enemies better than they love each other. That we would love people we disagree with in such a way that they would just be flabbergasted and flummoxed by it. Do you love people like this? Or do you deem some people unworthy of the gospel and refuse to share it with them? Have you written some people off and demonized them because they don't look like you or behave like you or think like you? How can you write people off because they don't know Jesus? You received a gift and because they didn't, you're going to look down at them? That's stupid. I wonder who, who you've demonized and written off. Maybe, maybe it's the Republicans that you think are unworthy of knowing the gospel message, unworthy of the grace of God. Maybe it's the Democrats that you think are beyond God's saving grace. Who is it that you have set yourself against? Who have you said that person could never be saved and as a consequence not shared the gospel with them, not built a relationship with them? How has your hatred been an obstacle to your obedience to the call of God to share Jesus. Jonah is fearful of the Ninevites. He's also hateful towards the Ninevites. And these are two of the obstacles. And now let us consider the third obstacle to his obedience, love. And to be more specific, his love of his sin. His love of of his hatred more than he loves God. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. 
This he paid the fare can be translated literally as he paid her fare or her price as in the whole ship. And so medieval Jewish rabbis actually believe that all the prophets were really, really wealthy. And so when they look at this text, they say Jonah was wealthy and to buy the whole ship, he would have had to sell everything to get far away from God. He would have had to pay a high price for his sin. I don't know if that's true or not. Either way, it would have been costly for him to go to Tarshish. Because these Tarshish ships are a little bit like our contemporary cruise liners. And so they would go to a bunch of ports. And so the traveling from Joppa to Tarshish would have taken about a year. And if you, I mean, if you just think about how much money you would pay to go on a three-day cruise, and Jonah's kind of paying to go on like a year cruise, like he's paying a lot of money for this. And I just think, is this not a picture of us? In love with our sins so much that we're willing to pay for it. Notice too that Jonah's not fleeing Nineveh, not even fleeing Jerusalem. He's fleeing the Lord's presence. He's fleeing God's presence. Let's, let's give Jonah some credit like he knows that God made everything, that he is the Lord of the sea and of the land, that he is omnipresent, that he can't really get out of the presence of God. What he's trying to do here is get away from the place where God has spoken to him. He's trying to get away from the temple, get away from the people of God. He's trying to cut himself off from anyone or anything that might lead him to change his mind or his direction. And this isn't so crazy because this is exactly what we do when we want to live contentedly with our sin. We cut ourselves off from meaningful relationship with Christians. We stop coming to church. And we, are, we do our best to still the small voice of our conscience in our head. Because we want to enjoy our sin. And we don't want anybody to disrupt that. And so... We hide it. Friends, hiding your sin is the same thing as getting on a ship headed for Tarshish. We don't, we don't like to bring our sins out into the light because they offer to us a, a temporary high, temporary enjoyment that we, we think will last but is always fleeting. But friends, that is the way to death. I mean, we don't, we don't often like to confess our sins to one another because it's like we're afraid we're going to get found out. But, but if you're here, if you're a Christian, you've already been found out. Like if you're trusting in Jesus, you've said, I'm a broken sinner, I don't have it all together, I need a Savior. And guess what? I, we are all just as broken. We all need Jesus. We all need his grace. It is senseless to allow sin to grow in your heart and to keep you from God, to keep you from obedience. It might offer you a, a temporary pleasure in the short term, but brother, sister, in the long term, it will be as poison to your soul. 
we mustn't love our sin more than our Savior. And if we do, this might be an indication that we do not yet know Christ. Because those who know Christ crucify the flesh with its passions and its desires, and they aim to live by the Spirit of God. They die to sin and live to righteousness. And yes, as a Christian, you are going to fail over and over and over again. But your pursuit, your goal, is going to be to be holy as God is holy. It's going to be to become in practice what Jesus has declared you in truth, which is righteous and and. You have to evaluate yourself here. Am I satisfied in my sin or am I struggling against it? Am I trying to honor God? Am I trying to obey Him in every area of my life? If you are not struggling against your sin, don't know that you know Jesus. The Christian life is marked by falling, yes, because we are weak, but not falling away because Jesus is strong. Friends, if you're, if you're a Christian, you can never separate yourself fully from the presence of God. If you're a Christian, you can never separate yourself from God. Because Jesus Christ separated himself from the presence of God on the cross so that you never can be. That means no matter how you screw up, no matter how you walk away, if you truly know Jesus, you can't lose him. It means that maybe if you are like Jonah and you've harbored some sin and you're trying to get out of God's presence, that God is going to come for you and he's going to catch you. I do love verse 4 starts out the second scene of the book, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. Jonah's plans are going to get turned upside down because God isn't going to let Jonah get away. He's going to grab hold of him and he's going to bring him back home. The hound of heaven has your scent, Christian, and he will track you down best to hear his word, believe it, and repent now rather than later. Maybe if you're not a Christian, maybe you get the sense that God is pursuing you. Let me encourage you to believe. Turn from your sin and believe. We mustn't let our fears, our hatred, our love for sin stand in the way of our obedience to Christ. When tempted to allow these things to dictate our behavior, we need to take them and put them in the light of the gospel. Remember that our God is meticulously sovereign, that our lives are in His hands, and that He is offensively graceful that he forgives the worst of sinners, even sinners like you and me. Friends, we we are all Jonahs. We've all failed to obey God because of a fear. We've all failed to obey God because of hatreds. We've all failed to obey God because of self-righteousness and self-love. And we've all been forgiven by God. 
God's refused to let us go. There's nothing better than knowing that God loves us, that Jesus loves and uses idiots like you and me. It's a wonderful truth. There is hope for Jonah's like us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, laying bare our hearts and for exposing us to difficult truths about ourselves. Self-righteousness we might have been turning a blind eye to. Subtle hatreds festering in the dark corners of our souls. A love for sin that persists despite our claims of knowing you. God, we ask that you would bring all of these things into the light, that you would help us to confess our sin to you and to one another, that we might experience your forgiveness afresh, that we might enjoy that wonderful truth that you love those who are broken in spirit, God, thank you for saving sinners like us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Our hymn of response is Have Thine Away, Lord. Hymn number 480. Please stand.
Okay. It's like, wait a minute, it's Monday again? I <laughs> throw it a little bit there. Um, Phyllis Rhodes' funeral service will be tomorrow at 11 o'clock at Reynolds Funeral Home in Waynesboro. All are welcome to attend. All right, anything else? All right, your time's up, so you'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, for showing us just the unbelievability of your grace, your kindness to us. Pray that as we go from here, we wouldn't let our lives return to business as usual, but that your Holy Spirit would press on us, that that you would shove us into a deeper and more intimate relationship with you, a more holy faithfulness. God, make make us more like Jesus. We love him. It's in his name we pray.